Well, good morning and welcome to our worship gathering. It's good to be with you once more here on this Lord's Day, right? We have this wonderful privilege of, of coming every week and um, hearing the Word of God and fellowshipping and singing songs together, a song about the five solas. How often does that happen? That's just amazing. And I'm glad to be with you today. We began to study the farewell discourse in John's gospel nearly seven months ago. <laughs> Just that section, nearly seven months ago. We began on September 30th, and we wrapped it up last Sunday, on Easter Sunday, but we didn't really talk about wrapping it up or closing it out because it was Easter Sunday, and we were focused on Easter primarily. But So we were, we were looking at that particular section in John's Gospel for right next to seven months. And you remember the very first thing we looked at was the example of humble, sacrificial love Jesus had set for his disciples by washing their feet. Remember that? They were gathered in the upper room. It's the very first thing we looked at. We saw that in chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. And from there, we looked at how Jesus identified and dismissed his betrayer, Judas Iscariot, how he also, at the same time, announced his, his death and returned to the Father, and how he foretold Peter's thrice denial which would occur later that evening. We looked at those things in, in basically the rest of chapter 13, verses 8, 18 through 38. And we learned that those particular revelations of the betrayal and, and Peter's denial and, and Jesus going to be killed on a cross and, and resurrected and ascending and leaving them, we remember uh, learning that those particular things just shocked and saddened the disciples. They and their thinking and their theological thinking, thought that Jesus had come to conquer Rome and establish his earthly messianic kingdom and reign and these sorts of things. So being betrayed and killed and resurrected, ascended, physically absent, and, and basically glorified in the Father's heavenly presence, it just didn't fit with their very narrow Judaistic view of Messiah. And so they were pretty blown out. By the time you get to the end of chapter 13, they're completely blown out. And in chapters 14 through 16, we looked at how Jesus sought to comfort his sorrowful disciples. He issued a, just, a, in my opinion, a multitude of promises, the promise of his spiritual presence after he's physically gone, the promise of the paraclete, that's the Holy Spirit, the promises of fellowship with the, with the you know, triune fellowship or Trinitarian fellowship, fellowship with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit the promise of gospel perspicuity, which is understanding, which they had a hard time understanding at this time, the promises of, of peace, joy, strength, provision, answered prayer, spiritual power, and, and gospel fruit. All of those promises culminated in Jesus' concluding promise at the end of chapter 16, that the disciples would, in fact, triumph and overcome the world, because he had overcome the world. How did he overcome the world? Through his perfect life, through his sin-conquering crucifixion, through his account-settling burial and death and devil-defeating, destroying resurrection. That's basically the farewell discourse in a nutshell. It took us seven months. It took me seven months to compile that so I could just say that. <laughs> So we've, we've basically wrapped up the farewell discourse. It's done. It's complete. And could we 
not spend another seven months or maybe 70 years looking at it? Of course we could. Now, in the next section, John tells us that Jesus turns to his Father in prayer immediately, immediately following his statement about his and the disciples' victory over the world. Literally, he, he, he concludes his farewell discourse with this bold statement and promise about how they can have peace in the midst of their tribulation. Why? Because he has overcome the world. They can have peace in him, peace in the overcomer. And he immediately follows that with this incredible prayer. When you make a statement like that, it makes sense to back it up with some prayer, doesn't it? And yet in doing this, in, in, in going right to prayer, Jesus displays his dependency on the one who ensures victory. I like what Frederick Godet wrote. He says, To transform the victory which, has, which was announced in, into a present reality, nothing less was needed than the action of the omnipotence of God. It is to him that Jesus turns. That's amazing. Brothers and sisters, I'm excited to announce to you that we are going to begin to study the high priestly prayer here in John chapter 17. That's what we're going to be looking at. This entire prayer comes immediately after he makes that bold statement. And there really isn't anything like this prayer in the Bible or anywhere else for that matter. It is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament and the longest recorded prayer in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Now, there's some pretty amazing prayers in the Psalms. In fact, many, many, if not most of the Psalms are prayers, but this is, this is the most simplistic and yet profound prayer I've ever even looked at. It has a simplicity to it, but... It has a complexity to it because of its doctrinal structure. It really has three parts. In other words, Jesus petitions the Father for essentially three things or three people or maybe one person, a set of people, and a broader group of people. So really, you can divide it into, into three parts. Now, I was going to attempt to break it up into smaller pieces and teach it, but I don't know. I don't know where the Holy Spirit's going to lead over the weeks to come, but I don't want to lose the essence of each section, and sometimes you do that when you focus on the detail. But in any case, it has three parts. Firstly, Jesus prays for himself. We see that in verses 1 through 5. Pretty amazing that, that the second person of the Holy Trinity who's existed forever and ever and ever, and ever he doesn't have a beginning or an end. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords, and the Lord of creation, all things were created through him and all that, and yet he spends all of this time in prayer. Why would he need to pray, right? You're Jesus. Well, he prays. He prays for himself. Of all things, he prays for himself in the first section. Secondly, Jesus prays for his disciples, and in the immediate context, it's the 11 who are walking with him at this point to Gethsemane. And there are some references in there that go beyond that. Uh, there's some doctrine in there that points to all believers, but for the most part, he's praying for that particular group. And thirdly, Jesus prays for all believers, all of the believers that existed at that time, and uh, which weren't many, and, and every believer for as long as the world exists, every believer for all time, you might want to say it like that. And we see that in uh, verses 20 through 26. 
So he prays for his disciples in 6 through 19. He prays for all believers in 20 through 26. And this prayer was done audibly. In other words, he, he spoke it out loud. He didn't kind of just say it in his mind or in his heart. He literally, and I think my theory is they, as they were walking, they just kind of popped off to the side and maybe sat and took a break because it was a bit of a distance to Gethsemane from, from where they were in Jerusalem. And I think they maybe stopped off and, and, and he stopped to pray. And, and, and at this point, he literally prays out loud in front of them. It was done in front of them and so that they could hear him pray. I mean, this is, it's recorded here and John wrote it. So he listened to Jesus carefully. And I think they just stopped off somewhere. Now others say that, well, they were still in the upper room. You know, that's where he did this prayer. He was still in the upper room, but, but there's a little bit of difficulty with that theory since the end of chapter 14, verses, uh, let's see, 13, 14, yeah, chapter 14, verse 31b, has Jesus saying, rise, let us go from here. So I don't know how they're still in the upper room when they got up and left. Now listen to this introductory statement by MacArthur. This is really good. Why do I quote him all the time? Because he says things better than I can. Right? He says, of all the prayers of Jesus in the Gospels, the one recorded here in the 17th chapter of John is the most profound and magnificent. Its words are plain yet majestic, simple yet mysterious. They plunge the reader into the unfathomable depths of the inter-Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son, and their scope encompasses the entire sweep of redemptive history from election to glorification including the themes of regeneration, revelation, illumination, sanctification, preservation. A lot of shuns, right? <laughs> a lot of doctrines there. He, and he says this, the veil is drawn back and the reader is escorted by Jesus Christ into the Holy of Holies, to the very throne of God. As you can now see why I quoted him, because that's just, I would have just said it's a great prayer. It is a phenomenal prayer, and we're going to spend some time looking at it. But this morning, we're going to begin with really the first part. Jesus prays for himself, and I think it's befitting that we pray before we read and study his prayer. Father, we ask that you open our dull minds and our hearts to your word through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Teach us this morning through your word and through the Spirit, and uh, we pray that the word would as it's accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it would pierce us and cut through the things that need to be cut through. A kind of surgery would happen today where you literally expose things that need to be removed and uh, that we might become more and more like you, Christ, which is the goal of our salvation. And so we, we humble ourselves and ask that you perform that great supernatural work today in our lives. And if there be any man or woman here today that does not yet know you, I pray that you would bring them to faith. I pray that you would, by your sovereign grace and power, that you would cause them to be born again. That you would graciously give them the gifts of repentance and faith. That you would illuminate them. And so we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus as we continue to worship you through your word. And we... Again, we say it in His name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin at verse 1. John chapter 17, verse 1. And, and I don't, man, 
I haven't had a chance really to look. I've looked at the other sections, but I haven't studied them yet. But this one is just five verses that are just so profound. And Jesus, it, it happens like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, now here's where he begins to pray. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Let me just stop right there. Let's just break down this verse. Look at the first phrase with me. We'll just look at the words and phrases. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is a transition point out of the farewell discourse into this prayer. In fact, these words refer to everything that he said in the farewell discourse. Just about anything and everything that he said. In other words, John's telling us the farewell discourse is complete. And in many ways, Jesus' teachings are complete. In some ways, his discipleship of these men is complete. He spends all this time with them, raising them up and, and teaching them the gospel and empowering them, and then now he's going to pray for himself, them, and for all believers. So that signifies the end of the discourse, and, and really, in some ways, the end of his discipleship of them. It's complete. And it says in the second phrase, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And what does it mean? Is it some kind of an interesting spiritual thing here? No, he literally just looked up. He took his eyes and he looked up. And this was a classic Jewish expression for prayer. Over in, back in Psalm 123, verse 1, we read, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. This is a Classic way for a Jewish person to begin a prayer. They would just look up and begin to pray, acknowledging God on His throne in heaven. There's a humility here in this. And notice how Jesus addresses God. He says, Father. Now, He does this six times in His high priestly prayer. He addresses God as Father in His high priestly prayer. Six times. Six times. By calling God Father, he is acknowledging his subordination and dependency on the Father as the Son of Man. There is no dependency in the deity of Christ on the Father. He is God. But in his humanity, there is a dependency. There is a subordination, a submission. And so when he says Father, he is acknowledging his subordination, his dependency on the Father as a man. But he's also underscoring his co-equality with the Father as the Son of God. He calls God Father. The implication is he's the Son. The implication is he's God. And using this phrase, Jesus is declaring both his humanity and his deity. In fact, he's declaring his full humanity and his full deity. Now go wrestle with that one for a while. How is a person fully God and fully man? But I think what I like really the most, maybe the most about his use of this title for God is that it, it clearly underscores his intimacy, the intimacy that he shares with the Father. The Greek word for Father is pater, spelled P-A-T-E-R in English, but it's pronounced pater. And in this context, it refers to conversational addresses or conversations that take place between a son and his father, his daddy. 
And that's what you see here. He's calling out to his daddy. Jesus' intimacy with the Father is not only reflected in this prayer, he indicates that it should greatly influence the disciples' prayers and our prayers as well. I mean, he taught the disciples to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven. You You can call God your Father. You can call him Dad is what Jesus taught them. And here he's essentially teaching us the same thing, trying to influence us to pray in such a way, letting us know that we have this kind of intimacy with God as our Father. I mean, we talked about this last week. We have this direct access to the Father because He loves us. And having God as our Father is is just such a tremendous privilege. Being able to address Him as such is is strikingly different from any other religion in the world where most of them are fear-based. You would never dare to even pray to God in any kind of way like this. And Jesus says, this is how you pray. You call Him Father because He is your heavenly Father because He loves you. You're His son. You're His daughter. And I'll tell you, having God as our Father is such a privilege. It should inspire humility in us. It should inspire gratitude. It should inspire reverence. Amen? We don't treat that title and that privilege flippantly or lightly because the very God who holds people in his hand, who holds the entire universe, all of creation, the cosmos in his hand, of infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite holiness. Well, that's just incredible that we can address him in such a way. Jesus is teaching us to do that here. Next phrase, the hour has come. Oh, man. You know, there were several times in the Gospel of John where disciples, his disciples were asking him to do certain things or whatever, and, and Jesus said repeatedly, I think six, seven times in the Gospel of John, he says, the hour, my hour has not yet come. In other words, disciples, it's not time to do that. The hour has not come for me to do that yet. And yet here, Jesus says, the hour has come. And what is he referring to here as he says this? He is referring to his death. He is referring to his burial. He is referring to his resurrection. He is referring to his ascension. This is basically what he's referring to here is the consummation of his entire earthly ministry. The hour has come for me to bring it to completion. In fact, in this part of the prayer, he refers to it as being complete already when he hasn't done certain things. But that's it. This is the hour. This is the hour of my death. I've told you, men, this is the hour of my burial. This is the hour of my victory in resurrection on the third day. This is my my hour of ascension and glory. This is the consummation of his ministry. MacArthur, again, the unfolding drama of redemptive history had reached its apex. Plans made in eternity past were finding their culmination in time. This is the hour that had been pre-planned before anything existed. That hour had come. The hour for that plan to be fulfilled. Think of it like this. The hour has come. I've got a series of these for you that will be helpful, I think. The hour has come for the Lamb of God to offer Himself as the perfect, complete, atoning sacrifice for sin. 
John 1.29. The hour has come for, for him who knew no sin to be made sin for all who believe that they might become what? The righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's the doctrine of imputation. That's the doctrine of double imputation. He takes our sin upon his body on the cross and exchanges it for his righteousness. He gives us that. He trades us. How glorious. Because no one without that righteousness enters the kingdom of God. The hour has come for the despised and rejected man of sorrows to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and chastised. Why? For our healing and peace. Isaiah 53, 3-5. The hour has come for Christ to cancel the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands by nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2, 14. The hour has come for the seed of Eve to disarm the spiritual rulers and authorities and bruise the serpent's head. Colossians 2.15, Genesis 3.15. The hour has come for the one who had been crucified and killed by lawless men to rise on the third day victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. Acts 2. 23 to 24. The hour has come for the firstborn of many brethren, the risen and resurrected Christ, to ascend into heaven and take his seat at the right hand of the majesty, enthroned in glory. Romans 8.29, Hebrews 1.3, Acts 1.9, Acts 2.33, Psalm 24.8. Last phrase. Glory, he says, glorify. Let's listen to what he prays for here to the Father. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Oh. And, and, and you've just got to listen to J.C. Ryle's paraphrase of this statement. Again, he puts it better than I ever could. It was as if the Lord Jesus was saying this, Give glory to your Son by carrying Him through the cross and the grave to a triumphant completion of the work he came to do, and by placing him at your right hand and exalting him above every name that is named. Do this in order that he may glorify you and your attributes. Do this that he may bring fresh glory to your holiness and justice and mercy and faithfulness and prove to the world that you are a just God, a holy God, a merciful God, and a God who keeps his word. My vicarious death and my resurrection will prove this and bring glory to you. Finish the mighty work. Glorify me, and in doing so, glorify yourself. Finish your work, not least, that your Son may glorify you by bringing many redeemed souls to heaven to the glory of your grace. Wow. MacArthur backs it up with another great statement. He says, Jesus' prevailing focus had always been on glorifying his Father, perfectly submitting to the Father's will in everything. Even to the end, it is fitting that his ministry would climax in a majestic prayer that emphasized the very thing that characterized his entire life, the Father's glory. Now in verse 2, Jesus anticipates his exalted 
glorified and authoritative position subsequent to his crucifixion and resurrection. Look at verse 2 with me. Jesus says this next, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. At the ascension, Jesus will take his seat at the right hand of the Father and and exercise full authority as sovereign Lord. By the way, that's already transpired. He's doing that now. What did Jesus say just moments, to his disciples just moments before he ascended? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? Matthew 28, 18. As sovereign Lord, Jesus has authority over all flesh or over all people, is what he's stating in this, in this verse, in this prayer. What does this mean? Let me tell you what it means in a very simple way. It means that nobody makes Jesus their Lord. You've heard that said. Well, you need to pray and, and make him your Lord and Savior. Uh, newsflash, he is your Lord and Savior. Nobody makes him their Lord and Savior. They may submit to him as such, but nobody makes him Lord. He is Lord whether folks acknowledge and submit to his lordship or not. Now, one day, the entire intelligent universe, the angels in heaven, the spirits of the redeemed in heaven, the believers who are on earth, the unbelievers who are on earth, and the demons and and lost humanity in hell will take a knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? Philippians 2, 10 and 11. So one day, there's a universal submission to His Lordship. Now, that doesn't mean that those who were not saved are going to be saved. They're not, but they're going to be made to acknowledge His Lordship. It is utterly ridiculous, in my opinion, to tell people to make Jesus their Lord because He is already their Lord. We don't make Him Lord. The Father made Him Lord. What did Peter declare to a mixed multitude on the day of Pentecost? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, is what he says, Acts 2.36. He is... Lord, whether you acknowledge His Lordship, submit to it or not. Choosing not to believe in Jesus Christ does not negate His Lordship. He is Lord. Because Jesus has been given authority over all flesh, He alone executes judgment against those who reject Him, John 5, 22, And He alone grants eternal life to whom? To all whom the Father has given Him, verse 2b. Eternal life can only be granted or given by Jesus Christ. People today are always saying and, and, and declaring and stating boldly that there are many, many paths to heaven. Presbyterian minister in North Carolina recently stated, one of my personal mantras is, one God, many paths. Not sure how the presbytery pointed him. I have to say to this statement, really, one God, many paths. Well, that's not what Jesus said here in verse 2. That's not what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's not what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. 
That's not what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16, right? Our favorite verse at all the football stadiums. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. That's not what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29, when Jesus was walking toward him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not what Jesus' right-hand man, Peter, said in Acts 4.12. There is, uh, he says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which, uh, given among men by which men must be saved. That's not what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, horrible, horrible, but the free gift of God is eternal life in who? Christ Jesus our Lord. I think John Calvin summarized the subject perfectly when he wrote, There is no part of our salvation which may not be found in Christ. He's it. You go to anyone else, you're not going to have it. Eternal life is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and He grants it to all whom the Father has given Him. All whom the Father has given Him. All whom the Father has given him were foreknown or foreloved in eternity past, Romans 8.29, and chosen and appointed to eternal life in eternity past, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Acts 13.48. They are Jesus' sheep, and he is their good shepherd. He laid down his life for them. He knows them, and they know him, John chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. So who can give eternal life? Christ alone. Who does he give it to? To those whom the Father gave him alone. No one else. It's a privilege to have God as our Father. It is an incredible privilege to have salvation. But he gives it to his distinct, chosen, predestined people. And he made that decision in eternity past. I don't know why. He's really good at pre-planning, I'm not. But it's what he did. It's what he did. It's what he did. It's what the Scripture teaches over and over and over and over. And the sooner you come to terms with it and submit to what the Word says, the sooner your joy will be full. In verse 3, Jesus just very plainly describes what eternal life is. Look at 3 with me. I mean, you just you can't get any plainer than this. And this is eternal life, he says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In contrast to our merit-driven society or the pluralistic claims of the religious culture here, eternal life consists of knowing the only true God through whom he sent Jesus Christ. That's precisely what Jesus says here in verse 3. Eternal life is to know the Father through the Son. The Greek word for know is ginosko. It does not refer to head, just head knowledge or intellectual assent. It refers to the mind and the heart. It has to do with knowing God and loving God. Knowing Him with your mind, loving Him with the center of who you are. To know 
God, according to this text, to know the only true God, according to this text, means to be in a deep, intimate love relationship with Him. I mean, He's, he's your Father, right? Intimacy, love relationship. And this relationship with Him is established only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not established through your good deeds. It's not established through your work. It's not established through Muhammad. It's not established through Buddha. It's not established through Shintoism or any other kind of religion. It is established only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because no one comes to the Father except through Him. Now, if you take issue with that, you take issue with Jesus. Because that's what He taught. That's what He said. According to Dr. Steve Lawson, the phrase eternal life speaks of two things, quality and duration. In terms of quality, Jesus refers to eternal life as the abundant life, John chapter 10, verse 10. Right? I came to give them life that they would have it abundantly. Speaking of eternal life, what is this eternal life abundantly full of? It is abundantly full of the mercy, goodness, and presence of God. Psalm 23, verse 6. Everyone loves Psalm 23. Did you know that it's speaking of eternal life? What it means to have it? He's my shepherd. He, you know, he protects me. He guards me. He feeds me. He nourishes me. It's... So... The eternal life that, that Jesus is talking about here is a life of abundance. It is abundantly full of the mercy, the goodness, and the presence of God. It is abundantly full of inexpressible, glorious joy, 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. It is full of hope, Titus 1, 2. Now, is it full of more things than that? Absolutely. I don't have time to go into all of the details, all of the expressions of its fullness or what it's full of. I just went to what I think are some of the primary ones. Let's put it this way. According to the Apostle Paul, eternal life, its abundance, all that it is and represents, is of such high quality it cannot be fully comprehended on this side of glory. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, right? He's talking about the things that God has prepared for those who know Him, who love Him. So, so, so we get an idea of what it's like here. We experience the joy of it, the peace of it, the presence of God and all that, but it is beyond, truly beyond our ability to fully comprehend how great it is, especially the glory side of it. That's, I think, what really what Paul is talking about. So that's the quality, right? It's of the highest quality. In fact, the world can't offer you anything like this. It can't give you anything like this. Those of you who are saved know what I'm talking about here because there was a time when you weren't saved and life was hard and difficult. You didn't have joy. You didn't have peace. You didn't have the things that you have. And then you got them and you're like, wow, this is completely different. I'm a different person. All right? You can testify to that. The world couldn't do that for you, could it? Now, in terms of duration, <laughs> this is just a no-brainer. It's eternal. 
eternal life. And for some reason, this with some people in the church, that, that truth goes like this. It just, it just flies right off of them because they keep telling people you can lose it. How can you lose eternal life? You cannot lose eternal life. So the duration is eternal. It is everlasting. It is forever. It is never-ending, which means it cannot be lost. Cannot be lost. That's the duration. Now, there does, however, exist a kind of knowledge of God that stops short of eternal life. It does exist. The demons know God exists. They shudder at the thought of Him, James 2.19, but they do not love Him or submit to Him. And a vast amount of people today have demon faith. They know God exists, and, and many even claim to love Him, but they disobey Him by rejecting the one He sent, Jesus Christ, and therefore do not know Him, know Him intimately. They do not know Him in a saving way. And I think that's, that's the broad road. That's the majority of people today. Oh, I, I, know, I know God exists. Yeah, I, I love Him in a sense. Yeah, I'm so glad He created me and gave me my car and all these things. And what do you think about Jesus? Well, I, I, don't, I don't care about Jesus. Why would I care about Jesus? He didn't even exist. Okay, so translation, you don't know God. You don't love God. You're His enemy. You're not His child and... I mean, that's, that's just reality. That's what it is. There is a knowledge that exists that stops short of eternal life. Uh, we see that reflected in a warning Jesus gave when many so-called Christians approach him when he's in heaven and they say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things for you. And he says, away from me, you workers of inequity. I never knew you. That's, that's just intellectual assent. That's just knowing God, but not knowing God here. That's knowing him here, but not here. And we need to be very careful here. We, we reject Jesus Christ. We do not know the one true God. And we cannot be saved. We cannot experience eternal life. I mean, that's, that's what he's teaching. Lastly, what Jesus prayed for here in verse 3 is, is utterly spectacular, in my humble opinion. What I see him praying for here is I, I see him praying for the salvation of all whom the Father has given him. That's what I see him doing right there. He's, he's praying for what? Ginosko, that they come to know in their minds and love in their hearts the only true God through him. That's what he's praying for. You see, Jesus never, never divorced God's sovereign plan or God's sovereign will from God's sovereign plan. He understands that God in His sovereignty, He is God, they did this together, planned to save people, but He also understands that God sovereignly planned, set forth a plan for that to take place, which includes the hearing of the gospel, faith, repentance, prayer. And I love the fact that Jesus knows they'll be saved and knows His sheep, and yet He still prays that they would be saved. When you think of it like this, in his high priestly duty, he knows that our salvation is sure, that we will make it all the way to the finish line, and yet he prays that it would happen. In fact, I think if he doesn't pray for it to happen, it won't. 
So Jesus never, never neglected the means by which God affects things. And he's here humbling himself and praying for the church to get saved, even though he knows it will be. Just because we know the outcome of something doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. Amen? He's praying that they come to know in their minds and in their hearts. They have this knowledge of the one true God and they love the one true God. And he knows that it can only happen through him because that's precisely what he stated here and pretty much everywhere else. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow. In verse 4, Jesus states that he brought the Father glory on earth through completing his work. In other words, he, 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 he had brought to completion, he had accomplished his role or his part in the plan of redemption, which was set forth in eternity past. Now, he was obviously referring to his, his preaching, right? Preaching the gospel, his miracles that authenticated his preaching and gave people a glimpse of his coming kingdom. He, he's referring to his perfect obedience to God's law, right? The earning of our righteousness. He's obviously referring to his atoning sacrificial death on the cross. Obviously, he's referring to his resurrection. Now, this is an interesting thing for him to say in his prayer here because he hasn't yet died and been resurrected. He's talking about him in the past tense. How do you talk about something in the past tense that hasn't taken place? Why does he do this? Because he knows he will accomplish them. He came down from heaven to do his Father's will, John 6, 38. His Father's will was that he lay down his life and take it up again for his sheep. John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. Jesus never, ever deviated from his Father's will, never deviated from his Father's plan. His entire life was marked by perpetual submission and obedience. And if it hadn't been, he wouldn't be our Savior. Because his life was characterized and marked by perpetual submission and obedience because he always obeyed. He could say that these things that were about to transpire over the next few days were as good as done. Having accomplished everything according to the predetermined plan of God, Jesus knew that he would be exalted to the place where he had been before his incarnation at the glorious right hand of the Father. With that exaltation inside, in verse 5, he expresses his desire to receive back the glory he had before he condescended and came to earth. And literally, he says, before the world ever existed. Well, there's his eternality for you. Yes, he, he existed before the world began. And I'll tell you what, what's really interesting about this prayer here that he's doing, this part of his prayer, it... The prim what do you think the primary purpose of it is? It's not, you know, a handful of the doctrines that I unpacked for you. There's, there's a bunch of doctrine packed into this. 
You see election predestination, all sorts of things there. It's not, it's not that. There is a, a primary purpose here for this part of his prayer. What do you suppose it is? What did he actually pray for here to the Father in verses 1 through 5? Well, the primary purpose of this part of his high priestly prayer is his glory. That's it. That's it. That's what he's praying for here. The glory of Jesus Christ is the primary purpose of this part of his high priestly prayer. That's what he's praying for. That's what he wants back. Notice how I said that's what he wants back. You see, in his condescension, he was made a little lower than the angels. He steps out of perpetual glory and worship to come down here. He left the air of heaven, we sang earlier, to breathe the dust of earth. He condescended. He became a man like you and I. He left glory, and now he's praying to the Father, I have completed everything that you've said, knowing that he will complete the death, the burial, the resurrection. When I ascend, return to me the glory that I shared or that I had. He didn't share it. The glory that I had, the glory that you have before the world ever existed. That's what he prayed for here. Did the Father answer his prayer? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, see, Jesus, he went on to Calvary, and he died a horrific death in your place. He was buried for you. He rose on the third day, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for all who believe. Forty days later, he ascends into heaven as a champion. He steps into heaven, back into heaven, the place that he left, He steps into heaven as a champion. And he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, enthroned in majestic glory. He is sovereign Lord now over all flesh, over his church, over the cosmos, over the heavens and the earth. The Father answered his prayer. He fulfilled everything that he was to fulfill, accomplished all that was necessary for the salvation of his people, stepped out of glory to do it, finishes the job, steps back into glory, Lord of lords, King of kings, seated at the right hand of the majesty. Yeah, Father answered his prayer. He answered his prayer. Closing. In verse 4, Jesus declared that he had glorified the Father on earth by accomplishing the work the Father had given him to do. Just look back at it in verse 4. Is this not what he says? Well, you just need to think about the parallel there to us. As believers, we have a similar objective, do we not? We are to bring Jesus' glory on earth through accomplishing the work He has given us to do. Right? 
This is essentially what Jesus was teaching his disciples to do. I've come down to do the Father's will and work and to complete it and bring him glory. Now you are to do that for me. The question, however, is what is our work according to Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us very plainly in a couple of places what our work is, right? Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The end of Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 15, that's our work. Our work is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, that's our work. In other words, preaching the gospel and making disciples is our work. That, that, is, that is the work that Jesus Christ has given His disciples, His people, believers to do. That's it. That, that's a, that's a, a pretty simple job description. Preach the gospel, and and many of you are never going to step into a pulpit, gossip the gospel, you just talk about it with people, and you make disciples. Well, what is making a disciple? It's teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. It's seeing to it that they are baptized. These sorts of things. That's our work. And when we engage in our work... Jesus is glorified. He is glorified. He is glorified even when those whom we're ministering to are, are, are cold as a fish. Don't care to hear what we're saying. He's still glorified. Well, he's only glorified when they submit and pray the prayer of salvation. Well, hopefully you're not leading them that way. No, that's not the only way he's glorified. He's glorified when you do your job. Whether that person submits to Christ or not. Now, it is true if that person submits, the angels in heaven rejoice. Yet he's glorified when we engage in our work, the work that he gave us to do. In the same way that the Father is glorified when Jesus engages in his work. So my question is, are we engaging in our work? Are we sharing the gospel with others? Are we making disciples? I think today, this is a, a, a great problem in the church, that the people of God are so turned in on themselves that they just don't even think about what's going on out around them, and they're not out evangelizing and doing the things that they ought to be doing. They're not out there doing the work of the Lord. They're doing their work so much so they can't even be at church. <laughs> we have... We have work to do. We have work to do. But make no mistake, there's a broader meaning here. You know, evangelism and discipleship, that, those are not the only ways that we're called to bring glory to Jesus Christ. It's not only through that kind of work. We don't want to miss the broader meaning that's represented here. 
the goal, our goal as believers is to bring glory to Jesus Christ through this work undoubtedly. But that's not the only way we are to bring Him glory. We are to bring Him glory in and through everything we do. Not just evangelism and discipleship. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our entire life is to be one hymn of His glory, that everywhere we go, we're glorifying Him in what we do. And not just in external actions, but in our thought lives, because that's where everything begins. We're to bring Him glory in, in our thinking, in our working, when we're not evangelizing and, and making disciples because we do go to a job and we have things to do there and we try to share the gospel when we're there, but pretty much I need to keep making widgets. That's what I do. You, you, you make widgets for the glory of Christ. You, make, you, you bring Christ's glory through your thinking and through your conversations, through your interactions with people. I mean, are we really cognizant of this reality? Do we really think about this? I mean, you really have to set your mind to it every morning when you wake up. One of the things that just really encourages me at home is, you know, when I get up, and I, I get up a little later than Rachel, not 10 or whatever. I don't know if you guys think pastors, you know, they've got these banker hours or whatever. They're close, but not quite. But, you know, I don't get up at 10 or anything like that. I get up at like 730. But when I get up and I, I go out in the kitchen, you know, I got to get the coffee going, right? And it's decaf, so it makes no sense. It's like, well, I feel so much better after I drank that it did nothing for me. The coffee mate was good. But I just, I go out there and I start making my coffee and I look over and there's my bride. She's over there reading her Bible. That's how she starts her day. And I start my day with coffee and then fumbling around for a while until I finally realize what I should be doing. You really got to develop this as a discipline, to be praying and to be seeking the glory of Christ in, in everything, not just in your, the work that He's given us, in all our work, in all our efforts, in, in all our endeavors. The totality of who we are is to be one song to the glory of Christ. But I would very easily say this is not an easy thing to do, amen? <laughs> as soon as I attempt that, my flesh just... <sighs> It's a hard thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do to be mindful of what you're saying all the time and what you're doing. Maybe to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit and listening to Him because He whispers and to be responsive to Him. But it's a challenging thing to do, to, to bring Christ's glory in all things. Is it not? I mean, it's not terribly difficult if you're going to go out and do some evangelism to do it then. But it's difficult to do it on the way there as you're driving because some bonehead in front of you is doing two miles an hour. You know what I mean? How many, how many of you have ever been driving and you said, you know, where's a cop? There's never a cop around when we need one, right? You know, John's thinking, oh, here we go. Hey, you think about it, right? You know, some guy cuts you off and you're like, there's, there, should be, there's, there should be a cop. There was 29 motorcycle cops on McHenry this weekend. Where's one now? It's difficult to glorify Christ as you're going to that appointment to evangelism. <laughs> but see, that's what he's after. All the moments, all the time. It's not easy. 
But I'm thankful we have the Holy Spirit who convicts us when we fall short. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit who helps us achieve practical holiness on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. Amen? And I think I'm mostly thankful that the grace of God never runs out for believers. Ah. Never. You see, we have eternal life, and our failings don't impact that. I'm glad because, man, I'd be in eternal life one moment and out of it the next. But I have to ask you this morning, what is the Holy Spirit convicting you of? What is He saying to you this morning? Do you have an area in your life that falls short of the glory of Christ? Have you not been on mission? Are you not doing the work He has clearly given you to do? Am I not doing His work? Am I not living in such a way that brings Him glory? Where are you at? And you need to confess what you need to confess. You need to repent and we need to confess what we need to confess. We need to repent and turn away from the sins that prevent us from bringing glory to the one who shed his precious blood to purchase us. Right? What do you need to address today? Maybe, maybe it's, it's such a difficult struggle for you, you need to get a little help. You need to come to one of the elders after the service and, and ask him to just tell him what's going on and ask him to pray for you. Or maybe if you're a gal and you don't want to talk about it with a guy, I totally understand that. Would prefer that you don't tell me. You can talk to my wife. I don't see Brenda here today, but you can talk to Lily. You can talk to Carol over there. You can talk to Mary. You can talk to Diane. You could speak to any gal here. And sometimes that's the fear, right? We have this struggle that we're going through ourselves and we're not sure how to get through it and we don't seek help because we'll either be embarrassed or whatever. And you're not going to be embarrassed here. We're just a bunch of fools for Christ. So... What is it, what area, what particular thing is keeping you from bringing glory to Christ in that area of your life? Because He wants it all, and He deserves it, doesn't He? Doesn't Christ deserve? We need to squeeze out our lives like a lemon and get all the juice out of it. All for His glory. That should be the heart of the believer, even though sometimes it's a very difficult thing to do. That's a good question to ask you. Do you want to bring Christ's glory? Because if you don't really care, then you've probably got no spiritual pulse. And you need to go to the beginning. And you need to recognize that you're a sinner, separated from God. You need to recognize that you need the blood of Christ to cleanse you, to purge you, to restore you to the Father. You need to repent of your sin and put your trust in Him alone. You'll have the Holy Spirit, and now you can begin to bring Him glory in your life. You can't bring Him glory without the Holy Spirit. You can't bring Him glory without being born again. So maybe that's the starting point for you. Whatever it is, you can come talk to us. We're safe. We're safe. And you can pray right where you're at. Call upon the Father for mercy. You can do that. You don't have to go through me to do that or anyone else.